Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Centerville, Michigan. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. On the morning of February 27, 2008, Marcia Springer pretty much had her family's Centerville house all to herself. Her husband, Tony, was at work, and two of their daughters, Courtney and Heather, were at school. The only one home with Marcia was her and Tony's oldest daughter, 16-year-old Callista, who was sleeping upstairs. She was homeschooled, the only one who was homeschooled, and didn't need to be up at a specific time. At some point after 8.15 a.m., Marcia started vacuuming and it wasn't long before she smelled smoke. She stopped the vacuum and the smell went away, so she started it up again, but the smell returned. With that, she turned the vacuum back off and went into the kitchen for a minute. When she walked back into the living room, she found flames where she had placed the vacuum and ran back into the kitchen to get the fire extinguisher. Unfortunately, according to her, she couldn't remove the safety pin, so it was useless. Marcia would later tell officers that she wanted to save her 16-year-old daughter, Callista, who was still upstairs in bed, but the flames were spreading quickly and Marcia was starting to get burns on her face and hands. Because of that, she was forced to flee the house without Callista. But why couldn't Callista get out of the house on her own? When firefighters arrived at the scene, Marcia told them that Callista was upstairs in her bedroom, tethered to the bed because of special needs. Firefighters desperately searched for a way inside. At that point, the flames were only on the first floor, but like Marcia had said, they were spreading quickly. By the time they made it to the extremely smoky second floor, it was too late. Callista was lying in her bunk bed. She had died from smoke inhalation. I can only imagine that finding a body after a fire has to be a firefighter's worst nightmare. But what those firefighters saw in Callista's bedroom that day was beyond anything training could have ever prepared them for. 16-year-old Callista, who only weighed 91 pounds, died a soul-shattering death. An autopsy showed that her airway was black with soot all the way down, meaning that she had been alive during the fire. But that wasn't even the worst part. Callista had been restrained to her bed by a dog choke chain fitted around her waist and attached to the bed frame with plastic zip ties. MLive reported that the chain was a half inch wide and two feet long. The distance between Callista's waist and the bed was about nine to ten inches, meaning she couldn't get up unless someone cut the ties. According to court documents in an interview with investigators, Marcia explained that Callista had been tied up because she had special needs, saying she was prone to self-mutilating behavior and couldn't be trusted at night because she rarely slept and would get out of bed and get into dangerous objects like razors, knives, and medications. Marcia said Callista required 24-hour supervision and had to be restrained at night. In the past, Marcia said that she and her husband, Tony, used an alarm system similar to what nursing homes use to alert staff members that a resident has gotten out of bed. The system had a fabric strap that attached to Callista's waist. The strap was then connected to an alarm installed on the side of the bed that would go off if she got up in the middle of the night. 
Marcia said the alarm had worked wonders for years, but only a few days before the fire, the alarm broke and they couldn't find the parts to fix it. With how much of a danger Marcia claimed Callista was to herself and others, she said that she and Tony had to keep Callista restrained at night somehow, so they resorted to using the dog choke chain. At first, they tried securing the chain with twisty ties and rubber bands, but that didn't work, so they ended up using zip ties. In the morning, Marcia would use a pair of needle-nose pliers to free Callista, or so she says. While speaking to investigators, Marcia made it seem like she and Tony had only used the chain for two days, that they didn't want to use the chain, but were forced to until that part for the alarm came in, that they had no other choice, Callista had to be protected from herself. But when investigators spoke with friends and family, they heard a much darker story. That the Springers had been chaining Callista up and physically abusing her since at least early 1995, when she was only three years old. That's 13 years, not two days. Callista Marie Springer was born on May 22, 1991 in Sturgis, Michigan. According to Tony, Callista's birth mother, Norma, was neglectful, so one day he decided to take Callista and leave. Not long after, Tony met Marcia and the two married. In 1994, they welcomed a daughter of their own, Courtney. The following year, in 1995, CPS was called on Tony and Marcia for the first of many times. The first two reports came after Callista, who was three years old at the time, and Courtney, went to the doctor for a checkup, and a blood test showed that they had extremely high levels of lead in their system. According to M Live, a doctor told the Springers that the girls needed further testing, but Tony was very reluctant to have the tests done. The doctor explained the dangers of lead poisoning and warned them about the link between lead and development of learning disabilities in children, but the Springers didn't seem to care. The doctor later testified, I remember being very frustrated that the parents were not compliant with my requests. CPS was told about all of this, but it didn't matter. The doctor was right, Marcia and Tony's failure to treat their daughter's lead poisoning would have lasting effects on her health. The following year, in 1996, the Springers welcomed another daughter, Heather, and she completed their family. In January of 1997, Callista's biological mother, Norma, sought custody of now five-year-old Callista. She alleged that Callista was malnourished and had been abused. Tony denied the allegations and in return sought to have Norma's rights taken away completely. Four months later, in May, Valerie Springer, Tony's sister and Callista's aunt, reported that Callista had a bloody lip after Tony hit her in the face. According to court documents, CPS looked into Valerie's claims, and Marcia did confirm them, but for reasons unknown to anyone else, CPS declined to take further action. That same month, Tony was awarded custody of Callista, and Marcia later adopted her. In the eyes of the law, Marcia was now her new mother. The following month, in June of 1997, her Aunt Valerie made another report. 
that Callista had second-degree burns on her thumb and ring finger, and not only that, but that the burns had gone untreated despite there being an infection. Valerie also stated that Marcia had hit Callista in the face and given her a bloody nose because she had stuck out her tongue. Again, CPS did not take any action. Before 1997 was over, Callista was allegedly exhibiting atypical behavior for a six-year-old, so they took her to see a psychologist. According to M Live, he found that Callista was well cared for, but that her behavioral issues included poor judgment, no fear of strangers, and a lack of impulse control. The psychologist diagnosed Callista with learning and behavioral disabilities and pica, a tendency or craving to eat substances other than normal food. There have been TV shows about this where people eat chalk or baking soda, and it's often associated with some type of vitamin deficiency or malnutrition. The psychologist also diagnosed Callista with a pervasive developmental disorder, PDD. According to the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, PDD refers to a group of disorders characterized by delays in the development of socialization and communication skills. It's unclear exactly which disorder Callista was diagnosed with. It's also unclear which symptoms of PDD Callista exhibited, but we do know that symptoms could include problems with using and understanding language, difficulty relating to people, objects, and events, unusual play with toys and other objects, difficulty with changes in routine or familiar settings, and repetitive body movements or behavior patterns. According to NINDS, children with PDD vary widely in abilities, intelligence, and behaviors. Some children don't speak at all, others speak in limited phrases or conversations, while some have relatively normal language development. Repetitive play skills and limited social skills are generally evident, and unusual responses to sensory information such as loud noises and lights are also common. Following his diagnosis, the psychologist told the Springers that Callista needed 24-hour supervision. According to court documents, he felt like Callista almost needed to be in an institution to receive the amount of supervision that she required to keep from killing herself. The Springers took his statement to mean that Callista should be kept locked in a room and restrained to a bed so she wouldn't hurt herself or others. It's important to note here that the psychologist later testified that Callista was always well-behaved when she came to visit him. He also said that he never told the Springers to lock Callista in her room or restrain her to the bed. On May 24, 1999, a social worker with the Wraparound Program, which provided assistance for youth with severe emotional and behavioral problems, made a complaint to CPS stating that the Springers told her they were restraining Callista in the basement, which had block walls and a dirt floor. The Springers said that they were placing a chair next to a pole in the basement, then using a belt to tie Callista to it. The social worker told the Springers to stop immediately and never do it again. After she made the complaint to CPS, a caseworker was assigned to investigate, and in the end, the caseworker found no signs of abuse in the Springer home. Tony later claimed in a statement to the court that she wrote in her report that Callista had to be restrained in her room to prevent her from injuring herself or others. If she wasn't restrained, she would destroy just about everything in her bedroom and put things like razor blades and nails in her mouth. 
Tony claimed that she also wrote in her report, As Callista is getting older, her behavior is less predictable and more of a threat to all family members. Marcia and Tony are concerned that people outside of the family will not see the need for the very strict, structured environment they maintain with the girls. In the past, perhaps some persons have felt the parents are too strict without realizing that this is the case for the safety of the children in the home. It's unclear if the caseworker actually ever wrote any of those things because MLive reports that Tony didn't provide a copy of the report with his statement to court. On June 27, 1999, just over a month after that social worker made her complaint to CPS, Marsha filed for a personal protection order from Tony. According to MLive, Marsha claimed Tony was prone to fits of rage and violence, often throwing objects and punching walls and doors, that he threatened her at times and often took his anger out on their daughters. In a letter attached to her request for protection, Marsha wrote that Tony suffered from bipolar disorder, attention deficit disorder, and severe depression. She said Tony rarely took his Prozac and Ritalin and didn't see any need for counseling for himself or our marriage. Marsha wrote, Tony never has a kind word to say to the girls and has never told them that he loves them. It's just constant yelling to shut up, get out of my way, and get out of my sight. MLive reported that Marsha referred to Tony as self-possessed and said that he bounced from job to job and spent what little money the family had on his collections of model airplanes and Civil War memorabilia. Marsha also claimed that Tony liked to pick up roadkill, boil the meat off the bones, then reconstruct the animal's skeletons. She wrote, This is not just a hobby. This has become an obsession with him. You can't have a conversation with him unless it has to do with this subject. A judge granted Marsha's protection order. Two months later, however, the order was terminated at Marsha's request. She told the judge, there have been no problems. We are seeking counseling. The counselor feels that with the children, we both need to be involved. It's unclear if the Springers ever actually went to counseling. Court documents show that CPS continued to receive complaints about the Springers' treatment of Callista in 1999 and 2000. During that time, an employee at St. Joseph Community Mental Health, who was assigned to work with Callista in the home, reported that Callista was locked in her bedroom at night, that there was a sliding bolt lock keeping her inside, and on top of that, Callista's windows were nailed shut and she slept on a cot with no sheets and no blankets. She told CPS that she spoke to Marsha about the dangers of locking a child inside a room with no exit, but Marsha didn't care. Marsha said Callista was locked inside for her own protection. If she was allowed to roam free, she could hurt someone or hurt herself by eating something she shouldn't. The employee later testified that she never witnessed Callista be violent. Instead, she said Callista was always quiet and reserved. MLive reported that another community mental health employee testified that Marsha was overly harsh with her children and would react negatively to the smallest thing. She also said Callista was treated differently than her two younger sisters, that Marsha would discipline or find something to discipline Callista about more than the other two. 
A school aide echoed her statements that Callista was treated differently than her sisters and said that they appeared to be from completely separate families. Courtney and Heather looked taken care of while Callista was sent to school in dirty clothes, shoes with holes in them, and unkempt hair. In May of 2000, a school counselor reported that Callista had come to school with a bruise on her face. That when she spoke to Callista, she told the counselor that she was locked in her bedroom at night, that there was no bathroom in her bedroom, so she was forced to wet the bed, and that her father kicked her in the stomach. Four months later, the counselor reported again that Callista was being locked in her bedroom at night, but CPS did nothing with those reports. In August of 2001, CPS received an anonymous report stating that Marcia told Callista that she hoped Callista died before the age of 12, but if she didn't, Marcia would put her in foster care. As per usual, CPS did not act on the report. Two years later, in 2003, the Springer family moved to downtown Centerville, a small town 35 miles south of Kalamazoo. Their new home was located right by the courthouse. The sisters, Callista, Courtney, and Heather, all shared a second-floor bedroom, and Marcia and Tony continued locking Callista away at night. They restrained her to a bunk bed, again, with no blankets, sheets, or pillows. According to MLive, the Springer's new neighbors noticed the same thing everyone else had, that Callista was treated differently than her two younger sisters and that she was rarely allowed to go outside. When she was allowed, she was often required to sit on her front porch with her head between her knees, sometimes for more than an hour, while her sisters and other children played nearby. When the Springers enrolled Callista at an elementary school in Centerville, they told the staff that Callista had special needs, that she was violent and would hurt herself and others. But when teachers started working with Callista, they found her to be a pretty normal 12-year-old girl. According to MLive, she struggled with some academic and behavioral issues, but otherwise tried hard in class and made friends. She could read, she could write, she loved to draw and paint, and she loved to color. She didn't seem anything like the girl her parents had described. The Detroit News later reported that school officials in Centerville noticed that Callista was frail and malnourished, which tracks with the fact that when Callista died at 16 years old, she was only 91 pounds. School officials also noticed that for days to weeks on end, Callista would wear the same clothes, long sleeve shirts and turtlenecks even in hot weather. When they asked her what was going on, they found out that she was forced to wear the same clothes and wasn't allowed to use a toothbrush, soap, or shampoo. Aides at the school actually started keeping those items, plus food, on hand for Callista. Once Callista made friends at her new school, she started confiding in them that she was often deprived from food at home. If she was given any food at all, she said it was just a small portion and that she had to eat it sitting on the floor. 
As for punishment, Callista told them that she was forced to stand or sit in a square made out of tape on the living room floor, and if she didn't, she was forced to place her nose on a piece of tape on a wall, sometimes having to stand on her tiptoes to reach it. In 2004, Callista went to a friend's house after school. While she was there, she told the friend's mother, Sue, what was going on. Sue later told MLive about Callista's visit, saying she ate like she was absolutely starved. I wanted to put food in her backpack when she went home. According to her, Callista said that she couldn't take a banana because she couldn't hide the peel. She took an apple instead because she said she could eat the core adding she was spilling her guts to us, trying to get out as much as she could about what was happening to her. It sounded completely horrific, and it was. After Callista went home, Sue called CPS, and as you'd expect with how this is going, Sue received little response. They essentially told her that Callista had problems because she had special needs, but Sue told MLive that the only handicap she saw was fear and hunger. Sue was so concerned about Callista and the poor response from CPS that she actually wrote a letter to a U.S. representative saying, someone needs to help her. Does she need to die before anyone listens? According to MLive, the representative did contact the Department of Health Services, which oversees CPS. DHS told him, most of the complaints we receive center around Callista's behavior caused by her disease and her parents' efforts to control her. It is our belief that Callista is cared for adequately by her parents. However, if we receive any new allegations of abuse and or neglect, we will conduct an investigation. The representative took DHS at their word and his office didn't look into Sue's claims any further. On October 29, 2004, Callista's teacher contacted CPS to report that Callista was being chained to her bed at night. According to court records, that same day, the Springer's neighbor also called CPS to say that Callista had told her she was being chained at night and that she hadn't eaten except at school for two days, adding that Marsha wouldn't let her use toothpaste or deodorant and that Marsha was physically abusive. Less than two weeks later, on November 8th, her teacher filed another report, this time stating that Callista had a black eye and that when she asked what happened, Callista told her that Marcia had forced her to lie on the floor, then pulled her head up by her hair and let her head drop back to the floor. After these three reports were made, CPS assigned someone to investigate the Springer family. We'll refer to her as the investigator for this next part. The first thing the investigator did was interview Callista while she was at school. According to court documents, Callista told her what had been going on at home. She talked about being chained up at night and described the physical abuse against her. Before the interview was over, Callista begged the investigator to convince her parents that restraining her at night was no longer necessary. Of all the things that was going on, that was the one thing she specifically asked them to change. After the interview with Callista, the investigator spoke with a CPS worker who had background information on the prior complaints made. She specifically wanted to know about Callista being chained to the bed. The worker allegedly told the investigator that the chain restraints the Springer family was using had been approved by the state's Department of Community Mental Health. The investigator later testified that she thought she could trust her co-worker's opinion, so she moved forward, not questioning the legality of the chains. 
After that, the investigator spoke with Callista's sisters, Heather and Courtney. They told her that they hadn't seen their mom hit Callista, pull her hair, or be mean in any way. In fact, they said that their mother was very patient with Callista. However, they did admit that their mother chained Callista to the bed at night. As the investigator's final interview, she met with Marsha and Tony. They told her that Callista was a known liar, that she made up stories, and you couldn't believe anything she said. When asked about chaining Callista up at night, the Springers said that they used a fabric strap to tie Callista in her bed, that it was the same device used in nursing homes to alert staff whenever a resident gets out of bed and roams around. For whatever reason, the investigator never asked them if she could see the alarm system they were talking about, though according to court documents, she did warn them about the dangers if a fire broke out when she was tied up. In the end, the investigation concluded that there was insufficient evidence to prove neglect or abuse. She wrote in her report, Callista is known to make up stories and she is not credible. It ends up that it is her word against Marsha's word. That didn't mean she wasn't concerned, though. She wrote, I tried to talk Marsha into letting Callista have a toothbrush and toothpaste unsupervised. It seemed to mean a lot to Callista, which should be enough to break anyone's heart. According to the investigator, Marcia said no. She went on to note, I am very uncomfortable with the way Callista is being treated and targeted. I can only hope that it really is necessary and for her own protection. She added a handwritten statement to the end of the report stating, Callista is a vulnerable child. Because she is not believable or credible, she would also be an easy target to abuse her. I think we need to check out all complaints regarding her. According to court records, her supervisor agreed with her. Well, the part where she wrote there was insufficient evidence to establish neglect or abuse. The case was closed. On June 3rd of 2005, the mother of one of Callista's classmates called CPS to report the same thing that damn near everyone else had and something new. That Callista told her she was being chained to her bed, was forced to wear the same clothes for days, and was sometimes hit with a board for punishment. A CPS supervisor spoke to a school counselor about the allegations, and the counselor told her that the claims were the same old story. That Callista was seeking attention like normal and declined to investigate any further. Because Callista's reports about her own abuse were so consistent, she wasn't seen as believable, and there is something so inherently wrong with that. Court documents report that her classmate's mom's call was the last one made to CPS before the fire that killed Callista. And that's because, following her complaint, the Springers took Callista out of public school and started homeschooling her. Every single red flag for child abuse was popping up one by one, and it wasn't enough for anyone with authority to save her. We're going to talk about those red flags for a second in the hopes that anyone anywhere might recognize them and save any other child from the fate that too many meet. 
In 2014, Dr. Deborah Knox, a pediatrician at the University of Wisconsin, found that 47% of school-age victims of child torture had been withdrawn from school for homeschooling, and an additional 29% had never been enrolled in the first place. If we're doing the math, which we definitely are, that's 76% of child torture victims who likely weren't being seen by anyone but their abusers. To make matters worse, some states, like Michigan, have little to no regulation on homeschooling, making it even easier for abusive parents to get away with hurting their children. The Detroit News reports that Michigan has some of the most lenient homeschool laws in the nation. To homeschool a child, a parent doesn't have to give a reason why they're doing so. They don't even have to notify anyone that they're going to homeschool. They can just pull the kid out one day and start homeschooling them the next. The scariest part of the lack of regulation is that in Michigan, the state isn't allowed to collect data on homeschool students. It unfortunately allows abusive parents, like Callista's, to use the system to their advantage, hiding their child away from anyone who could possibly save them. I am more than aware that there are a ton of amazing homeschool parents out there, but that's not who we're talking about here. Because of Michigan's lax homeschool laws, the second half of 2005 to February of 2008, Marsha and Tony were able to continue their abuse against Callista without CPS breathing down their neck. They knew no one was coming to look for her, and no one did. That brings us to February 27th of 2008, the day of Callista's death. If you recall, Marsha told investigators that she was vacuuming when the vacuum started smoking and eventually caught fire. That she tried to use the extinguisher but couldn't get the pin out. Investigators did not find the fire extinguisher. It appeared that Marsha had lied to investigators at how she tried to put out the fire. According to MLive, investigators later found out that Marsha had told at least one person that she had tried to put the fire out with a pitcher of water and that the vacuum blew up in her face. Who knows why she changed her story, but that one seemed more believable considering the burns to Marsha's face and hands. After the fire was out, investigators searched the charred remains of the house. The Detroit News reported that investigators never found any homeschool books or educational materials. As a shock to no one at this point, Callista had never truly been homeschooled. While looking through Callista's room, investigators did recover an alarm, but when they tested it, they found that it worked just fine. This meant that Marsha had lied about the need to chain Callista to the bed because the alarm was broken. But investigators already knew Marsha was lying. The medical examiner had found indentions caused by the chain on Callista's abdomen showing that she had clearly been chained up for more than two days. I've seen the photos, and it is horrific. She was on the top bunk, laying on nothing but a mattress, and was chained on the side of the bed by the wall. Her waist and back were against the wall, and her legs and feet were reaching to the side of the bed where you could get off, but she couldn't get off. Her body was also extremely frail. Investigators looked into the possibility that Marcia started the fire on purpose in order to murder Callista, but they found no evidence of it. It appeared that the fire really had been an accident, and Callista had died because she had no way of getting out of her bed. 
It took more than nine months, but on December 1st of 2008, 38-year-old Marsha and 45-year-old Tony were both arrested. Since investigators didn't find any evidence that the fire was started with the intent to kill Callista, they were charged with first-degree child abuse and manslaughter. If convicted, they were facing up to 15 years in prison, which, knowing what we know, doesn't feel like enough. A month and a half later, though, all of that changed. On January 15th of 2009, the charges against the Springers were upgraded. A new county prosecutor had taken over the case, and he thought the couple should face charges of felony murder and torture in addition to first-degree child abuse. Instead of a measly 15 years, they were now facing life in prison. At the end of February, Tony released a five-page report to the court where he addressed all the allegations against him and Marsha. You can imagine that it was completely full of shit. Tony said that he and Marsha homeschooled Callista because she wouldn't stop lying about being beaten, chained, underfed, and more, adding that she had several mental disabilities that required her to be extremely closely monitored by her parents to keep her as safe as possible. Tony wrote that there were copies of reports in the house that would prove Callista was violent and had no fear of anything, that one time Callista was found with razor blades in her mouth, and that's why she had to be restrained at night. It was for her own safety. Tony noted that CPS had been in contact with them four or five times, but pointed out that the children had never been removed from the home, which is a horrifyingly accurate point and not in the way he intended. Tony said that there was a witch hunt for him and his wife, that DHS and police were building a bonfire and looking for people to throw on it. Quite possibly the most nonsensical analogy ever made. Tony fought back toward anyone who claimed Callista could have been rescued if she hadn't been restrained and said that the claims don't mean a damn thing because the heat was so hot, nothing could have saved her. Just to remind everyone, she died of smoke inhalation. He added, her disabilities finally caught up with her. Her parents could not protect her from everything. If you just threw something across the room, you're not alone. Tony's sack of shit statement made no impact on the judge and they continued on with the court proceedings as normal. The Springer's joint trial, which had to be moved to Kalamazoo, began in late January of 2010. The prosecution told the jury that Marcia and Tony had been neglectful towards their daughter since at least 1995 and physically abusive since 1997. That the Springers had lied to people about the severity of Callista's health issues and that they'd even removed her from school to keep CPS off their backs. The prosecution also made sure to detail how badly CPS had failed her. At that point, the Office of Children's Ombudsman, an independent watchdog agency, found that two officials failed to properly investigate the allegations against Callista's parents. According to the South Bend Tribune, the OCO criticized CPS for not properly handling complaints of child abuse against the Springers for the previous 11 years. 
One official testified that she didn't know about the chain, that she thought the family was using a nursing home alarm system. M. Live reported that during her testimony, she held back tears while talking about how she was dealing with a personal issue at the time. She said that her head wasn't there when she signed off on the other's request to drop the complaint. The investigator testified that many people knew Callista had been chained up. However, she'd been told by her co-worker that the chains were approved. She trusted the co-worker and didn't look into the matter further, adding what we already know that she'd warned the Springers of the dangers of a fire. Before she got off the stand, the investigator admitted that the case should not have been closed. The prosecution pointed out to the jury what we have all picked up on at this point, that the investigator had warned the Springers about what could happen if they kept their daughter chained up in a locked bedroom and a fire broke out. Yet even still, they didn't make any changes and Callista died as a result of exactly that. And that even after her death, the Springers lied to authorities about how long they'd been using the chain on Callista. They stated that the smoke may have killed Callista, but the Springers were responsible for her death. When it came to the defense, they told the jury that the Springers loved Callista, that any actions they took to restrain her were to protect her from herself. The defense said Callista's death was an accident caused by the fire. According to M. Live, the defense told the jury, if the Springers are going to be murderers, then this table ought to extend out another six feet and the DHS ought to be sitting there because if the Springers are culpable, tell me how DHS is any less culpable. Where was the caseworker? Where was the other? They're sitting in their office, retiring or whatever, and now the same state of Michigan that they work for wants you to convict the Springers. Which may be one of the most offensive defenses ever, because if anything, I heard heinous shit happened over and over and no one did anything about it. And because you're not convicting anyone else for it, you shouldn't convict these two people. Because if everyone isn't being held accountable, no one should be. The defense didn't stop there and told the jury that Callista's PDD stemmed from the neglect she suffered as an infant at the hands of her birth mother. They even had clinical psychologist Dr. Susan Carter testify as an expert. MLive reported that Dr. Carter testified that Callista's disorders stems from a child's brain not developing properly in certain areas and is most often brought on by parental deprivation or neglect. The prosecution rebutted this statement, telling the jury that lead poisoning is likely what caused Callista's health issues. In an interesting choice, Dr. Carter also testified that children with the same developmental disorder as Callista are referred to as energy vampires because they suck the energy from everybody. Dr. Carter explained that children with the disorder often have fits of rage, don't sleep well at night, and often reject affection in relationships with their own family members. Dr. Carter also noted that children with the disorder have trouble with lying and stealing and resort to practices such as self-mutilation and manipulation. M. Live reports that she said, quote, The lying is a form of manipulation, and as these children mature, they develop language-based skills to get their needs met. They're very good at getting people to feel sorry for them by making things up. Let's remember that this testimony was heard in a trial where a girl wanted nothing more than food, toothpaste, to be able to use the bathroom in the middle of the night and not be chained to a bed. 
Under cross-examination, Dr. Carter admitted that she never treated Callista and was not the person to diagnose her with PDD. MLive reported that when asked about using chains to restrain someone with PDD, Dr. Carter said that the practice was inhumane and should be a last resort only used in an inpatient setting like a hospital. Moving along with the trial, Tony himself took the stand and testified about what it's like to be the father of someone with PDD. He painted a picture of an extremely stressful situation where it seemed like Tony and Marsha had no other choice than to chain Callista up. He said it was for her own good. Tony and Marsha's daughter, Courtney, also testified for the defense, and when asked about Callista's behavior, Courtney said she couldn't fall asleep and stay asleep, and she'd be up in the middle of the night singing or talking. She'd get up in the middle of the night and steal stuff. Courtney told the jury that even though Callista had PDD, she wasn't treated any different than her or Heather. She wasn't abused, she was allowed to dress however she wanted, and food wasn't withheld from her. Courtney said that the chain was only used for two days prior to the fire, that they had been using an alarm system, but it broke. After both sides finished their closing arguments, a jury of eight women and four men were sent out to deliberate charges of torture, first-degree child abuse, and felony murder, or alternatively, second-degree murder. On February 23rd of 2010, after deliberating for nine days, the jury found Marcia and Tony guilty of only torture and child abuse. They were acquitted of felony murder. On April 16th, they were sentenced. Marcia was given concurrent sentences of 7 to 15 years for child abuse and 18 to 50 years for torture. Tony was given concurrent sentences of 10 to 15 years for child abuse and 25 to 50 years for the torture. Concurrent means that the terms will not be added up together to make one longer sentence. This always feels like a blow. According to court documents, Tony's sentence was far greater than what the guidelines called for. That's because his offense variable, or OV score, was more than double the maximum reflected under the applicable sentencing grid. OV scores are used to determine the severity of the crime a person is convicted of. Both Marsha and Tony tried to appeal, but a court of appeals wrote that Tony's OV score is attention-grabbing, is of considerable worth, and does not exist in many criminal cases. All of their appeals have been unsuccessful. Callista's grandmother, Susan, sued several CPS officials. She alleged that they failed to adequately investigate and act upon reports that Callista was being abused, and that as a result, Callista died. The officials asked that the lawsuit be dismissed on the grounds that they had qualified immunity. With that being said, they did concede for purposes of the motion that a jury could reasonably find that the facts alleged in Susan's complaint amounted to gross negligence. The district court granted the motion to dismiss the lawsuit. At the end of their decision, the court wrote, the court was saddened by this case and is sympathetic to Susan's grievances. Indeed, CPS's handling of Callista Springer's case was less than exemplary. However, because the officials didn't increase the abuse against Callista, they couldn't be held responsible for what happened to her. That Callista was being chained to her bed before they got involved, and she continued to be after they closed the case. CPS was not in custody of Callista at the time of the fire, and the officials did not chain Callista up and leave her to die in it. 
The court said that no matter how tragic the story was, the only people who could be held legally responsible for Callista's death were her guardians, Marcia and Tony Springer. Susan continued to file appeals, but all have been unsuccessful. Callista's case wasn't the first time Michigan's Department of Human Services, or CPS, failed to protect children. According to the South Bend Tribune, apart from Callista's case, there had been at least four recent high-profile cases involving the deaths of children under foster or adoptive care in the state of Michigan. Like Callista, there were plenty of warning signs and opportunities to step in and save the child, yet nothing was done. The death of Callista and the other four children really opened the public's eyes as to how inadequate the system was. It was clear that workers' caseloads were beyond overloaded. In 2007 alone, CPS received more than 40,000 complaints. With that many, there was no way each one of them could get investigated properly. Because of that, there was a call to action for a reform of the system. A federal judge ended up ruling that, in an effort to reduce caseloads, DHS had to improve a range of child welfare services, including protective services hotlines, investigations, housing, and health care. As of today, the Springers are still imprisoned and will be for quite some time. Marcia is in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and her earliest release date is in November of 2028. Her maximum is February of 2060, when she'll be 90 years old. Tony is currently incarcerated in Coldwater, Michigan. His earliest release date is February of 2035, with his maximum in 2060, when he's 97 years old. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Callista's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me, and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. For ad-free and bonus episodes, check out our Apple Premium subscription or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. I'll be bringing you another case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 